Namaskaram. Um, today, I, the verse I'm going to talk about is verse 6 of Uljunapadu. What Bhagavan says in this verse is, Uluhu Aim Pulangul Uru Verandru. Av Aim Pulan Aim Poriku Pulanam. Ulehe Manam Ondru Aim Pori Bayal On Didu On Didu Talal Manate Andri Ulehu Undo. Are. Uh, what that means is the first sentence is Ulahu uh, Aim Pulangal Uru. That means the world is a form of five sense impressions. There, Andrew, not anything else. Um, I'll, read, I'll continue and then I'll begin to explain sentence by sentence. Um, and the next sentence of Aim Pulan. Uh, I'm Poriku uh, Pulanam. Those five sense impressions are impressions to the five sense organs. Ulahe Manamondru, I'm Pori Bayal, Ondidu Dalal, Manate Andri Ulahu Undo. Since the mind alone perceives the world by way of the five sense organs, is there a world besides the mind? Are, say. Um, <clears throat> this, is, uh, this is what Bhagavan teaches us in this verse is, is a, a very important thing to understand. That is, he begins by saying, the world is a form of five sense impressions, not anything else. But five sense impressions that means the five kinds of sense impression or five kinds of um, sense objects, namely sights, sounds, uh, uh, tastes, smells, and tactile sensations. Now, these five kinds of sensations are what constitute the world. If we remove these five kinds of sense uh, sensations or sense impressions, there is no such thing as world at all. Um, that's why he says, there, Andrew, uh, not anything else. Um, so the implication here is that the world is nothing but our perception of it. That is, what we see as the world is uh, sight, sounds, uh, taste, smells, and tactile sensations. There is no world other than these. So, so the implication here is that the world is nothing but a mental impression. But he goes on to say that further. I, I will, uh, I'm uh, jumping the gun slightly. And then he says in the next sentence, those five sense impressions, five kinds of sense impressions, are impressions to the five sense organs. That is a very straightforward thing. That is, sights are an impression uh, uh, uh to the eye, about uh, sounds or impressions to the ear. That's a very simple, straightforward thing. But then the important, uh, what he implies in the first sentence, he states explicitly in the um, in the third sentence. Uh, uh, what he says in that third sentence is um, manam ondru. Manam ondru we can interpret in two ways. We can take it to mean manam ondre, the mind alone, or we can take it to mean manam ondru, ondru meaning one thing, the mind. Uh, uh, so since 
remind alone, or since one thing remind, um, whichever way we take it, it doesn't really, um, it doesn't significantly change the meaning, perceives the world by way of the five sense organs. Is there any world uh, besides, uh, the word he uses for besides is andri. Andri means besides or excluding, if not for, apart from, other than or without the mind. Here, since he's talking about the mind as the perceiver, what he what he the, the, he's using mind here in the sense of ego. That is, uh, as he explains, for example, in verse um, uh, eighteen of Upadesha India, the term mind is often used as a collective noun for the totality of all thoughts. So in verse 18 of Upadeshundi, he says, Enangale manam, thoughts alone are the mind. Thoughts means all kinds of uh, mental phenomena or mental impressions. So apart from thoughts, there's no such thing as mind. The mind is, consists entirely of thoughts. But of all thoughts, um, the, the, the thought called I alone is the root. Uh, the thought, what he means by the thought called I, um, is the is the is ego. Uh, that is ego is a thought because it's not the pure I. It's the I mixed and conflated with adjuncts, as I am this body. That so, since the body is an object and therefore a thought, um, the, the the ego the, the thought called I is a thought. Ego is a thought. So he refers to it as a th he often refers to ego as a thought called I. Why is it the root? Because all other thoughts are objects, whereas ego, the thought called I, is the subject. So objects appear only in the view of the subject. So without the subject, no objects can exist. So what he implies, and then he concludes that verse 18 by saying, um, uh, um, Yanam manam enal. What is called the mind is I, meaning this thought called I, ego. Um, so what he implies in this verse is that the term mind includes both subject and object, when we use it in the broader sense, uh, because all other thoughts are objects. The first thought I is the subject. But since objects depend for their existence upon the subject, because they exist only in the view of the subject, what the mind essentially is, is only the subject, namely the, the ego, the first thought I. So generally when Bhagavan uses the word uh, mind, or we can't say generally, at least often or very frequently when Bhagavan uses the term called mind, he's using it in the sense of ego, in the sense of the subject. So here he says, since uh, one thing the mind perceives the world, here the mind means, since it's the perceiver of the world, it means it's the, the subject, in other words, ego. Um, so we, we need to understand from a context, whenever Bhagavan uses the term mind, we need to understand from a context the sense in which he's using the term mind. So he, here, as in so many other verses of Uludhanapta, as in Nana and so many other places, Bhagavan uses the term mind in the majority of cases in the sense of ego. Um, so, uh, since 
mind in the sense of ego alone perceives the world by way of the five sense organs, is there any world besides the mind? That is, the world is nothing but these five kinds of sense impressions or sense perceptions or sensations. Since these are, in, uh, are perceived only by the mind, since the mind alone that knows these, they have no existence independent of the mind that sees them. That is, objects do not exist independent of the subject. It's only in the view of subject, the, the subject, that objects seem to exist. Um, this is a this is a fundamental principle of Bhagavan's teachings and Advaita more generally, but it's a principle that is not understood even by many Advaitins. That is the the, the basic um, the basic truth of Advaita is expressed in the Upanishads as ekam eva advitium. That means one only without a second. That, that means what actually exists is only one thing and there's no second thing. So how to account for all this multiplicity? Now we see this world, it's full of so many things. So how can we see there is, say there is only one thing, one thing without a second? Um, uh, uh, when when we first told that, it seems to be something absurd. No, no, it's obvious that there are so many things. But in whose view do all these many things appear? That are, so. So, in according to Advaita, the multiplicity is only an appearance. That is what is called vivartavada. Vivarta means um, an illusory appearance. So. If they, they, yes, there do seem to be many things, but those many things are just an appearance. It's here that Bhagavan's teach, but Bhagavan uh, clarifies what is said. When it is said everything is an appearance, to whom does it all appear? It appears only to I, the ego. So it's only in the view of ego but all the objects appear. The objects have no existence, independent existence, because they're only appearances. And there can't be appearances without something in whose view they appear. So in whose view do all appearances appear? Only in the view of ego. So all, the world consists of a multitude of objects or phenomena. That's everything, we, everything that constitutes the world, including the the, the body that we take ourselves to be, and um, all, all the, the body means all the five sheaths, as Bhagavan said in the previous verse. So that that means the body, the life, the mind. In the, there, in that context, mind means um, the grosser functions of the mind, the perceptions, memories, thoughts, feelings, and uh, etc. And there, it's mind as an object, not rather the mind as a subject. The intellect, which is a um, which is a subtler form of the mind, and the will, which is the subtlest of all, these constitute the five sheaves, and these all, collectively these make up the term body. When we refer to ourselves as a, um, when when Bhagavan says, for example, that ego is nothing but the false awareness, I am this body. What he means by body is not just the physical form what we call body, but all these five sheaths. Why is that? Because we never experience ourselves as any one of these five sheaths without experiencing all of them. That is, we, we never experience ourselves as a dead body. 
So it's always a body with life. So that's the, the anamaya kosha, the physical body, and the pranamaya kosha, the, the, the kosha composed of life or breath. And we also never experience ourselves as a sleeping body. It's always a body that is awake. So because it's awake, mind, intellect, and will are functioning within it. So whenever we experience this body, we experience all these five sheaths as ourself. So, um, so it, but these are all objects. As Bhagavan says in verse 22 of Upadesha India, all these five objects are jada and asat. And therefore, they are not I who is Sat. So, since they're all objects, objects appear only in the view of the subject. That is, if, you, if we say no objects exist independent of the subject, then the whole of Advaita, the whole uh, of Advaita fall. I mean, that, that would, if we are willing to accept that, then Advaita is false because then there are many. If all if the world exists independent of our perception of it, that means the world actually exists. It, it, it isn't a dependent existence, but according to Bhagavan, the world exists only in the view of ego, right? only in the view of mind. As he says in this verse, since the mind alone perceives the world by way of the five sense organs, is there any world besides the mind? The mind is nothing but five kinds of sense impressions, five kinds of uh, perceptions, sights, uh, sounds, taste. Who is it who perceives this? It is the mind in the sense of ego. So does the world exist apart from mind? No, it doesn't. So Bhagav according to Bhagavan, yes, he, Bhagavan agrees with the, what is said in the old text, that all this is an appearance, but Bhagavan makes us think deeper than this. If it's all an appearance, an appearance has to appear to something. So in whose view does all this appear? Does it appear in the view of Brahman? No, obviously not. Because if Brahman, uh, if it appears in the view of Brahman, that means Brahman is sometimes knowing the world, sometimes not knowing the world. Because the world doesn't always appear. Sometimes it appears in waking and dream. It doesn't appear in sleep. Brahman here means our real nature, Atmasvarupa. So if it appeared in the view of Brahman or our real nature, uh, then that would mean our real nature is undergoing change. Sometimes it's knowing, sometimes it's not knowing the world. That our, our real nature is immutable. It never undergoes any change. So in the clear view of our real nature, that's ourself as we actually are, there is no world at all. The world appears only in the view of ego. As Bhagavan says in verse uh, 26 of Uludunapadu, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. So why is that? Because everything appears only in the view of ego. Without ego, nothing can appear. And if we say, oh, even though it doesn't appear, it still exists, that's a... a that, that is a, a repudiation of Advaita that says everything is just in a false appearance because there is one only without a second. So the, for, for Advaita, for the philosophy of Advaita to be a justified philosophy, firstly, we have to take all multiplicity to be an appearance. And secondly, the appearance cannot appear 
without appearing to something. So to whom does it appear? Does it appear to Brahm, to, to that which is one only without a second? No, obviously not, because in, since it is Ekameva Advaitium, in its view, there's no second. There's not, nothing other than it. There's no multiplicity. So all this multiplicity appears only in the view of ego. So as Bhagavan says in verse 26, if ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. Therefore, know that investigating what this is, this meaning ego, investigating what this is, is giving up everything. Why is it giving up everything? Because the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by grasping form. That means by, as he, this is what he said in the previous verse, verse 25, that, uh, the, ego, the nature of ego is to rise, stand, and flourish by grasping form. That means by being aware of things other than itself. So he says in the ver previous verse, verse 25, Urupatri um, Undu, Grasping form, it comes into existence. Urupatri nikkam, grasping form, it stands. Urupatri undu mika ongam, grasping and feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. Uruvitu urupatram, leaving form, it grasps form. So the very nature of ego is to grasp form. So we seem to be ego only when we're grasping form. But ego itself, as he says in the last line of verse 25, Uruvatra payahande, it's Uruvatra means formless. Uh, pay means uh, we usually translate it as a ghost or a phantom. Uh, more precisely, it means a uh, a pisasa, uh, uh, an, an evil spirit, um, a demon, um, but we can, uh, that is the more precise meaning, but we can also take it as a ghost. The, the implication of saying it's just a spirit, uh, uh, a phantom, is that it has no substance of its own. So ego has no form of its own, because it's Uruvatra, and it's got no substance of its own because it's just a phantom, it's just a, a spirit, uh, an evil spirit. Um, uh, so, since it's got no form of its own, it cannot, it, it has no separate existence without grasping a form as itself. So, and all, whatever forms it grasps are all things other than itself. Since it is formless, all forms are other than ego. Forms means, in this context, it means phenomena of any kind whatsoever. Um, also, in other words, all objects. So it's only by grasping and identifying itself with objects that ego uh, comes into existence, stands, and uh, by feeding on forms, it flourishes abundantly. And if it leaves form, it grasps form. It cannot stand for a moment without grasping form. So if instead of grasping any form, if it tries to grasp itself, what happens? Tedinal otum pidicum. If sought, it takes flight. Tedinal here means um, who is doing the seek? Tedinal, though we translate it usually as a passive, it's not actually a, a passive. It's neither active nor passive. It's middle voice. Um, so it's, it literally means if seeking, it takes flight. So who is doing the seeking and what is being sought? The implication is if ego, instead of grasping other things, if it 
seeks to know its own reality, if it tries to grasp itself, it takes flight, it runs away. In other words, the, the implication of that verse 25 is we seem to be ego only so long as we're looking at other things. So long as we're attending to other things, we're grasping form. And so we, we are feeding and nourishing ego. But if instead of uh, grasping form, if we try to grasp ourselves, Ego will subside and, and dissolve back into its source because it's got nothing. To, it, it, it itself is formless. So without form to grasp, it cannot stand. When it tries to grasp itself, it subsides and dissolves back into its source. So since ego will uh, cease to exist if we try, if we investigate it keenly enough, that is why he says in verse 26, therefore, investigating what it is, is giving up everything. To the extent to which we attend to ourselves, ego subsides. And since everything else depends upon it, for its semi existence upon ego, everything else will subside along with ego. Um, so by investigating what this ego is, we are not only giving up ego, we are giving up everything. Because everything depends upon ego for its semi-existence. And ego depends upon looking at other things in order to seem to exist. So uh, what Bhagavan is teaching us here in, um, in verse 6, he's laying the groundwork for the, that is what he says in verse 26, for example. That is a summary of, or that is the, the conclusion of what he has said in so many previous verses. So what he says in this verse, he says in so many ways in other verses, but the, the ultimate conclusion is the world, that's all objects, every, everything, all phenomena, all objects, depend on ego. Without ego, there is no such thing as world. So that's why he says, Manate Andri Ulahu Undo. Uluhu mean, here means we can take it to mean the physical world. If we're talking about the five kinds of sense impressions, then it's the physical world. But even the physical world is actually only mental. As we can see in, in, in dream, we see what seems to be a physical world. So long as we are dreaming, the world that we are perceiving seems to us to be physical. And we seem to be a part of that physical world because we are identified with the body in that world. But as soon as we wake up from uh, dream, uh, our, um, our identification with the dream body is severed. Uh, so we know it no longer seems to be real. That is, why, does, why do dreams always seem to be real um, so long as we're dreaming them? Even if we see things that are... Um, that are impossible in this waking state, it still seems to us to be real when we see it, because we're actually seeing it with our own eyes. Um, it all seems real because what is actually real is only ourself. Ourself means not ego, but that fundamental awareness I am. So long as we are dreaming, we identify a body as I. So since the body is so long as the body seems to be I, it seems to be real because I is always real. That is, I in its pure condition is real, not I as ego is real. Um, but in its pure condition, I is always real. So, um, 
because of the element of I in ego, ego seems to be real. Because ego identifies itself with a body, the body seems to be real. And since the body is a part of the world, the whole world seems to be real. So, so long as we're dreaming, the dream world seems to be real. But as soon as we wake up, we recognize, oh, it was just a, a mental fabrication. It existed only in our own mind. According to Bhagavan, our present state or any state in which we see phenomena is just a, is just a dream. So this world that we see now is just as mental as the world that we is just as much a mental fabrication as the world that we saw in a dream. So um, generally, when we use the word world, we're talking about the external physical world. But Bhagavan also implied in some places, but there. There are actually two worlds we experience. There's a, the, out, the, the outside world of physical, uh, for, of what seem to be physical phenomena, and there's an internal world of our thoughts, feelings, and so on. So um, that's why he says in verse six of um, Arunacha Ashtakam, when he's explaining how the world is just a projection of, uh, of the thoughts, um, that the world is nothing but thoughts. He, he says it appears um, on the mirror of the mind as um, uh, both as a, a, a world inside and a world outside seen through the five senses. So when Bhagavan uses the term world, we can understand it as meaning just the physical world, or we can understand it as meaning both the physical, both the external world and the internal world. In other words, the totality of all phenomena make up the world. So even our mental phenomena, even what we recognize as mental phenomena, our thoughts and feelings and emotions and so on, they are part of our internal world, but they all make up the, the, the totality of what is called world. Um, so the, the world here represents, um, in one sense, it represents just the physical world, the world that we see through the five senses. But in a broader sense, it, rec it, it includes all phenomena. Um, so all phenomena, no phenomena exist apart from the mind. Why? Because they exist only in the view of the mind. Since for one mind alone, perceives the world by way of the five senses, uh, is there any world besides the mind? Um, so this, this is, in this verse, as in, well, in all these verses of Uludhanaptu, Bhagavan is laying down the fundamental principles of his teachings. And what he says in this verse, he says in so many ways in other verses. For example, in the, in the next verse, verse um seven. I'll just go through a few verses just to show how Bhagavan is doing this. In verse seven, he says, um, he doesn't use the word mind or ego here. He uses the word arivu. Arivu means awareness. But since he's talking in verse seven about the arivu that, a, that rises and subsides along with the world, he's what he means here by arivu is is mind or ego. So Arivu by itself means awareness, but he, here it means the awareness that knows the world, not the pure awareness, not our real nature. So what he says in verse 7 is, though the world and awareness rise and subside simultaneously, the world shines by awareness. 
as I say, awareness here implies ego or mind. So it's only in the view of ego or mind that the world seems to exist. That's why he said the world shines by awareness. And then he goes on to say, only that which shines without appearing or disappearing as the place for the appearing and disappearing of the world and awareness is the substance, which is the whole. We we can also uh, uh, explain this uh, verse in terms of subject and object. Here, the word uluhu uh, represents all objects. The word arivu represents the subject. So though the the objects and the subject rise and, and subside simultaneously. The objects shine only in the uh, only by the subject. That is only in the view of the subject that the objects seem to exist, and only that shines without appear. That which shines without appearing and disappearing, as the place for the appearing and disappearing of both subject and objects, is the substance, which is the whole. Um, so there Bhagavan is, is again emphasizing the same thing. The world depends for its semi-existence. Well, here, here shines doesn't actually mean existence. It means uh, known. When he said the world shines by, the, by awareness, by shines by the mind, he means the world is known only by the mind. But according to Bhagavan, existing and shining are one and the same thing. Uh, uh, things that seem to exist, they seem to exist only because they shine in the mind or they appear to the mind, in other words. And um, verse 8 is a slightly different uh, subject. Verse 9, he comes back to the same thing. In verse 9, he says, he talks about dyads and triads. Dyads here means pairs of opposites, uh, such as existence and non-existence, life and death, awareness and non-awareness, knowledge and ignorance, happiness and unhappiness, good and bad, liberation and bondage, all pairs of opposites is what he refers to here as irritegal, dyads, or in Sanskrit, the word is dwanva. Um, and uh, what he refers to as triads, that's in Tamil Mupadigal. Mupadigal is a Tamil form of the Sanskrit word Triputi, which means the, the three factors of uh, transitive knowledge or awareness, namely the, um, the knower, the means of knowing, and, and what is known. Uh, in Sanskrit, they say uh, Pramata, means the knower, that's ego. Um, uh, pramana means the means of knowing. There are so many means of knowing. We, we know things by seeing, by hearing, perceiving, experiencing, inferring, or believing reliable testimony. There are so many means of knowing. Um, and uh, 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 prameya means what is known. So these three things, that is, whenever we know something, we are the knower, what we know is the thing known, and there must be some means by which we know it. Do we know it by seeing it or by hearing it or by um, having read about it in a book or having um, uh, memory of it? There's some means of knowing. So these three all go together. So what he says in this verse is, dyads and triads always exist holding one thing. The word he uses for one thing is Andrew. The same Andrew that he uses in this verse 6 when he says Manam Andrew, but here he doesn't say what the Andrew is, what the one thing is. 
but Bowie doesn't say it, but he clarified when, when, when explaining this verse, he clarified that what evil here means is ego. That is, why do dyads depend on, but when he said they exist holding one thing, that implies they depend upon it for their seeing existence. So why do dyads depend upon ego? It's only in the view of ego that all these pairs of opposites seem to exist. Existence, non-existent, life, death, uh, knowledge, ignorance, happiness, unhappiness. These are all only in the view of ego that these, uh, that these uh, pairs of opposites seem to exist. So they depend upon ego. And regarding the Triputi, Triputi, as I say, it consists of knower, the means of knowing, and what is known. Obviously, everything that is known, uh, there could, could not be anything known if there were not a means of knowing it. So what is known depends upon the means of knowing it. And there couldn't be anything known or anything means of knowing it if there wasn't a knower. So both the, both the, um, both the pramana and the pramaya, that the pramaya depends upon the pramana, and both pramaya and pramana depend upon pramata. In other words, what is known, the objects, depend upon the means of knowing them. And both the objects and the means of knowing them depend upon the knower. Without a knower, there, wouldn't, there couldn't be any means of knowing, nor could there be anything known. So everything depends upon ego. And then he goes on to say, if one, this is the first place he introduces this idea. But what he says in the second verse, or second sentence of verse nine, is is something that he repeats. I mean, this is again he's introducing here one of the basic principles that he's, um, that he's uh, he's emphasizing throughout the rest of Uludunapuru in so many verses. That is what he says in the in the um, next verse of verse nine is. If one sees within the mind what that one thing is, they will slip off. That is, that one thing, as I said, means ego. Everything, since dyads and triads depend upon ego, if one, if one sees in the, within the mind what ego is, they will slip off. Why will they slip off? Because ego itself will slip off. That is, we seem to be ego only so long as we're looking at other things. If we turn our attention back within to see who am I, ego will subside. And when ego subsides, everything will subside along with it. That is, he's beginning to introduce here what he summarizes later in verse 26 that I talked about earlier. Um, so when, when he says that dyads and triads will slip off, he, what he means by slip off, um, uh, uh, is, is they will cease to exist. Why will they cease to exist? Because they depend for their existence upon ego, upon this one thing called ego. Um, why do they depend upon ego? Because they are objects and ego, I mean, they, 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 it's only in the view of ego that there seem to be dyads and triads. But uh, it, when ego subsides, as in sleep, 
what remains, there's no multiplicity at all. There's only just the state of pure oneness, pure awareness, um, in which there are no objects of Pure awareness means awareness in which there are no objects. So without objects, they, 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 what remains is just the pure awareness. So that is just the state of perfect oneness. So all multiplicity appears only in the view of, of, of ego. So when we look within the mind to see what this ego is, they will slip off because ego itself will subside. And then he says, only those who have seen, have seen the reality. What he means by have seen, have seen this, have seen the, the, the dissolution of ego along with all the uh, dyads and triads. They will not be confused. Why will they not be confused? Because in their, because they're in the state of one only without a second. So there's nothing to confuse them. All confusion, the, the root of all confusion is ego. The ego is itself a confusion. It's a confusion, a conflation of, uh, it is chichadagranti. It is, a, we are conflating awareness with what is not aware. Awareness is the fundamental awareness I am. What is not aware is the body. We take this body to be I am. So we are aware of ourselves as I am this body. That is, that is the root of all confusion. So when we investigate this ego, ego will subside. Everything else will subside along with it. And all confusion will come to an end. Um, and then in verse 10, um, he said that... Uh, Without uh, ignorance, knowledge does not exist. Without knowledge, uh, ignorance does not exist. Only that knowledge that knows oneself, who is the first, by investigating to whom are that knowledge and ignorance, is knowledge. Okay, that's not really uh, uh, touching on this. Um, in verse uh, 11, he says, not knowing oneself who knows, knowing other things is ignorance. Besides, is it knowledge? So th that is his conclusion here is knowing anything other than ourself is not it knowledge, it's only ignorance. When one knows oneself, the support for knowledge and the other, knowledge and ignorance will cease. When he says knowledge and the other, he means knowledge and ignorance in this context. Uh, so what is the support for knowledge and ignorance? To whom are all knowledge and ignorance? It's only to ego. So ego is the support. So when he says, when one knows oneself, what he means is when one knows the reality of oneself, when we know what we actually are, he, he's not saying that our, our real nature is the support for knowledge and ignorance. Uh, that it, the support for knowledge and ignorance is only ego, because it's only in the view of ego that knowledge and ignorance seem to exist. But when one, when we know the reality of ourselves, then we will know we are not ego. So ego will cease to exist, and therefore its knowledge and ignorance will cease to exist. So he, that's why he said, "Arivum um, arum." Knowledge and ignorance will cease to exist. So the implication here is all knowledge and ignorance about anything other than ourselves depends upon whom it depends upon ourselves as ego. So he's this is what I say. He's constantly in so many ways he's dinning home this. He's he's emphasizing this point. And in verse twelve he says, um, "What is devoid of knowledge and ignorance is actually knowledge." That is the real knowledge. Knowledge here means awareness. What is the, the pure awareness, true awareness, 
is devoid of both knowledge and ignorance about anything other than itself. That which knows is not real knowledge. Since one shines without another for knowing or for causing to know, oneself is knowledge, one is not a void. Um, okay, that, that, that oh, but, but, but I could go on, but I, I probably pointed out now. In this what, what I, why I went through these later verses is but Bhagavan is constantly emphasizing in Uludunapadu in so many ways, but everything else depends upon ego. Because everything else appears only in the view of ego. Without ego, nothing else exists. So um the uh that 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 is the principle that he he first mentions here in verse six when he says, um, uh, "Since the mind alone, or since one thing, the mind perceives the world by way of, by way of the five sense organs, is there any world besides the mind? That is, without the mind, could any world exist? The world is nothing but a mental fabrication. It appears only in the view of the mind, and it has no existence independent of the mind. Um, so, uh, Bhagavan in Uludunapadu, if we if we understand deeply what he's saying, he's actually saying the same thing in so many different ways. That is, he's, in Uludunapadu, there are certain basic principles, but he is dinning in again and again and again, because if we understand his these basic principles, all the rest of his teachings will become very clear to us. And when we understand his teachings clearly, then what is the way, what is the path that he's taught us will also become clear to us. People often, without trying to have a deep understanding of Bhagavan's teachings, the first question they want to ask is, how do I do self-inquiry? If we understand Bhagavan's teachings, it's very clear what is self-inquiry, what is self-investigation. That is, we, what we are, when we are investigating ourselves, um, to put in the crudest terms, we are turning our attention away from the objects back towards the subject. So when what we're investigating is not any object. We're not investigating any of the five sheaths, for example. We're not investigating this body, but now seems to be I, nor the prana, nor the mind, nor the intellect, or the will. Though these all seem to be I, they are not actually I. So because these are all objects, whereas I is the subject. So we're investigating the subject. And when we go deeper, we come to understand from Bhagavan, but when we're investigating the subject, the subject is the adjunct mixed awareness, I am this body. But what we're actually investigating is, is not the subject per se, it is the reality of the subject. In other words, the fundamental awareness I am. That is in many places, Bhagavan will say, um, hold on to ego or hold on to the uh, thought I or, or investigate uh, this ego. But he, in other places, he clarifies that what it means to investigate ego is to investigate the, is to investigate the I. We're not in there. Ego is a mixed awareness. We are only investigating the real portion of that, that, that is the fundamental awareness I am. We're not investigating the body. We're investigating I am. We're not investigating any of the five sheets. So the more clearly we understand Bhagavan's teachings, the clearer more clearly we will understand what is the practice. 
That is, if we try to un- if we try to explain the practice without explaining the fundamental teachings of Bhagav- principles of Bhagavan's teachings, what we say will not be understood. Whereas if we if if we are able to understand the the basic principles, then what Bhagavan means by investigating ourselves, attending to ourselves, meditating on our real nature, Swarupa Dhyana, or he uses so many terms, Atma Vichara, Swarupa Dhyana, Atma Chintana, um, Tannatam, uh, Tat Gavanam, so many terms he uses. Tannatam uh, is a Tamil term that means self-investigation. Tat Gavanam means self-attentiveness. Swarupa dhyana means meditation on or attention to our real nature. It's all referring to the same thing, attending to this fundamental awareness I am. But this will all become clear to us to the extent to which we understand the basic principles of Bhagavan's teachings. So if if someone has difficulty understanding what Bhagavan means by self-investigation, it's because they haven't thought deeply enough about what, what Bhagavan is teaching us in works like Guludu Napadu and um, Nana Upadeshundiya. If we understand, if we study these works and think deeply about them, we will then understand what are the basic principles of Bhagavan's teachings, and then what is meant by investigating who am I will become very clear to us. What we have to investigate is not any object. We have to investigate only the subject. So, as he, as Bhagavan says in Nana, for example, however many thoughts arise, so what? As and when each thought arises, we should investigate to whom do they rise. Um, <coughs> uh, uh, that means investigate to whom they rise means we have to turn our attention away from what is known back towards the knower. That is the... Um, that is the path that Bhagavan has taught us. Um, so, so the more clearly we understand, but, uh, that is, this is why studying works like Uludu Napadu, um, Nana, Upadesh Undia, Arunachastutipanchikam, all these works, Anma Bidde, all Bhagavan's original writings, the more we we read them carefully and think deeply about what Bhagavan is saying. What it, we shouldn't just take the meaning of what he's saying. We need to understand the implication of what he's saying. The more we understand, clearly we understand this, the, more, the clearer the path will become. So uh, this is, these are not just, Bhagavan isn't just teaching us here some, some uh, nice philosophy. What he's teaching is extremely practical because if we understand what he's teaching us here, then the means to uh, to separate ourselves from ego and all its uh, and all its uh, progeny will become clear to us. The means to separate ourselves from everything other than ourselves is to hold on to ourselves alone. But what does Bhagavan mean when he says hold on to ourselves alone? Only if we read texts like Uludu and all his other original writings very carefully and think deeply about it, then it will become clear to us what he means by holding on to ourselves alone. So I hope this is uh, an adequate explanation of this verse. So if anyone has any questions they'd like to ask, um, please feel free to do so. 
Thank you, Michael. Um, so Michael um, Fenton is asking, when ego um, takes the body and projects the world, is this world one world or is there a separate world for each ego slash body? <laughs> How many egos are there? Because we as ego take ourselves to be a body and we see so many bodies like us. That is, because we take ourselves to be the body, that it is body, this body, okay, this is Michael asking Michael a question, so simple. There's, there's, there's an I that is aware of itself as I am Michael. This Michael is the name of a body. So because I take myself to be Michael, it seems to me that this person Michael is seeing the world, but Michael is not actually seeing anything. Michael is an object seen by me. That is, I who am aware of myself as I am Michael, I am the one who is seeing. So the, what sees the world is only ego. Michael is a part of the world. As Bhagavan says here, the, is there a world apart from the, uh, apart from the, um, uh, apart from the mind? The world includes whatever person we take ourselves to be, because the person we take ourselves to be, whether it's Michael or any other, whatever be the name of the person, we, it, it, we, the, the person we take ourselves to be is a part of the world. So what is seeing the world is not Michael or Kumar or any other person. What is seeing the world is I. Ego that takes itself to be this person or that person. So now we are aware of ourselves as one particular person. And we see so many other people, so many other bodies, and those bodies seem to be just like us. So we assume that in every body there is an ego just like us. The, the, that is, in my body there's an ego seeing the world out there. So in every other body there's an ego seeing. So we, 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 uh, assume the existence of many egos. But in dream, for example, we see so many people and we think those people are also egos like us. They are also seeing the world. If we say something, um, uh, something to offend someone in our dream, they get offended and they get angry with us or whatever. So they, they seem to be responding to this world in just the same way that we are. If they hit a, their foot on a stone, they, 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 they jump and they hold their toes, ouch, 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 just as we would. So every other person we see seems to be just like us. So it seems to us that this world is full of so many egos. Not only all the human people, there are seven billion human people, but there are so many other people in the forms of um, dogs and cats and cows and elephants and uh, monkeys and giraffes and all sorts of creatures are there. All of them have, seem to have their own personality. They all seem to be uh, aware of the world in the same way that we are. So it seems to us there are so many other um, egos who are seeing this world like us. But all these other egos exist in the view of whom? They exist only in the view of ourselves. In dream, as I say, we see so many people, human people and non-human people, that is, people in the form of human beings and people in the form of animals, we see so many in our dream. And they all seem to be seeing the dream world just like we are. 
If you ask someone in your dream, do you see this world? They say, yes, of course we see the world. What, do you, what nonsense are you? Uh, what a stupid question to ask. Um, so it, in our view, in the dream, all those people are seeing the world just like we are. But when we wake up from the dream, do we think, oh, what's happened to all those? Are those other people, are they still dreaming that dream? Or have they also woken up like me? We don't think like that. We, as soon as we wake up and recognize it was a dream, we know all the people we saw in our dream were jada. They, they weren't aware of anything. Not only were all those other people not aware of anything, even the person we took ourselves to be was not aware of anything. It was we, the dreamer, who took ourselves to be a person in the dream and therefore felt, I, this person, am seeing the world. But it's not the person who is seeing the world, it's the dreamer who has dreamt the world who is seeing it. So this world is a dream. Who is the dreamer of this dream? The one who is seeing it. Go figure. <laughs> uh, in other words, though there seem to be, so long as we're looking outward, there seem to be a multiplicity of egos, there is actually... Those, all those many egos exist in the view of the one ego who has seen them. And so does that mean there's only one ego? Yes, in a superficial sense, Bhagavan says, yes, there's Ekajiva, Ekajiva Vada, it's called, the, 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 the contention that there's only one Jiva, one ego. But according to Bhagavan, there is not even one ego. Because if ego, if that one ego investigates itself, it will find itself to be just pure awareness and that there never was an ego at all. So the, the Ekajiva Vada teaching of Bhagavan is a provisional teaching. It's not the ultimate truth. The ultimate truth is ajata. There is no ego at all. But so long as we see other things, those other things appear only in the view of ourselves as ego. So we can't deny the existence of ego so long as there seem to be other things, so long as we're aware of other things, because what is aware of other things is only ego. But if we who are now aware of so many other things, if we turn our attention back to ourselves to see who am I, the ego will subside and merge back into its source, and and its source alone will remain. Its source is just the fundamental awareness I am, which is pure awareness, pure being. Ekameva dvaitiam, one only without a second. Thank you, Michael. Uh, so I hope that answers that question. But if you, if that's not a satisfactory answer, by all means, come back and ask for well, more. Could uh, I just clarify? So, so there is one world. One? There's one world? One, like... When I think of it, when I... In each dream, there is one world. Now you're experiencing one world. In your dream, you're experiencing some other world. It looks very much like this world. You mistake it to be this world, but no, it's, not, but, it's but, not actually this world. So there is many worlds that there are dreams. Are me and my wife experiencing the same world, or is she experiencing a different world than I am? <laughs> Neither you nor neither Michael nor Michael's wife are experiencing the world. But I that is aware of itself as I am Michael is what is experiencing the world. That I that is aware of itself as I am Michael is the dreamer. Yeah. So it dreams itself to be Michael, and therefore it feels Michael is seeing the world, and therefore it sees uh, 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 
the wife and the mother and father and children and friends and so many other people in the world all seem to be seeing the same world. Yeah, this I can see, but I can't, I can't understand what my wife sees. I don't know what she sees, right? Like, okay, in, so, in, in, often you meet your wife in your dreams, don't you? I may, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's normal for us. So those who are those who are close to us, they often appear in our dreams. So long as they appear in our dreams, they seem to be seeing the world just like us. Yeah. But so it is the same up, eye. So my eye is the same eye. When I think I am, I exist. It is the same eye that my wife uses to say I am and I exist. Right. Uh, but the, but the form that I I grasp onto this body is a different body. My wife's body. My wife grabs her body. I grab this body. But the eye, the initial eye, is the same eye. Is this correct? Um, there is only one eye. The yeah. eye that is aware of itself as I am Michael, that is not the pure eye. No. That is the adjunct mixed eye. But yeah. what is one is the pure I am. That is the, the ground. That is the screen on which the whole pic, the whole dream is projected on a screen, like a like a uh, film projected yeah. on a. So the yeah. screen is I am. That is one. When we take ourselves to be a body, that I is then limited, and in the view of that I, who is now aware of itself as I am, this body. There are so many other bodies, and each of those bodies seem to be an eye. So there seem to be a multiplicity of eyes, so long as you're, we're looking outwards. If we look within, we will see there is only one eye. Yes. And this, one eye alone exists. So this I can see, but you you were saying earlier that that eye, the, the higher eye, the eye that is shared amongst all, it is not the eye that projects the world, right? Uh, it is a smaller individual eye that projects yes, the world, but, right? But uh, it's also important to understand there are not there are no, there are not two eyes, a higher eye and a lower eye. There is yeah. only one eye. That same one eye, when mixed and conflated with adjuncts, is what is called ego. It is ego that is now aware of itself as I am Michael. It is ego that is aware of itself as I, I have a wife. My wife is seeing the world just as I am. For all intents and purposes, so long as you're dreaming, all the people in your dream are seeing the world just as you, you are. But they're seeing the world and Michael seeing the world are all part of the dream. The whole dream appears in the view of one ego. One ego. Okay. Thank you, Michael. Right. It, that is what Bhagavan teaches us is something very, very deep. And the reason we often have difficulty understanding Bhagavan is it's so, so simple. We always, we, we, are, not, we are not satisfied with a simple explanation. We always are raising um, questions. About, but there's other egos and so on. But all those other egos exist in the view of which ego? Only this first ego, the one and only ego. So it's, it's the nature of our mind to complicate things. It's the nature of Bhagavan and his teachings to simplify things. Because the ultimate truth is infinitely simple. That is, what can be more simple than one? 
So long as you've got two, you've got complication. Now we've got all this multiplicity. How, what a complicated world this is with people fighting about wars going on and um, uh, greed and people exploiting other people and all these so many problems. There are problems caused by people, there are problems caused by just the nature of being embodied. Diseases come and old age comes, death comes, bereavement, all these things. It's all so, so complicated. But all Bhagavan simplifies it all. He said the whole thing, all this world with all its complexity, all its sciences and philosophies and histories and geographies and everything, arts and everything, it all is just a dream. And the dream appears in the view of the one dreamer. And if the one dreamer investigates itself, it will find itself to be just pure awareness in the view of which no dream has ever happened. So Bhagavan has, makes all that is complicated very simple. But our minds are always trying to complicate it again because that's the nature of my mind is always going out and projecting. And um, that is, Maya has, is said to have two powers, our varana and vikshepa. Our varana is the power of veiling. That's the false awareness, I am this body. That is the our varana. Vikshepa is, means scattering. That is, as soon as we are aware of ourselves as I am this body, we project this whole dream, all this multiplicity, all this complexity, all this human strife and violence and uh, anguish and suffering and um, uh, joys and sorrows and everything. This is all, this is all big shaper. It's all the, uh, the, the, the scattering of ourselves. But if we turn our attention back within to find, to see, to whom do all these things appear? The one to whom they appear, namely ego, will subside back into its source. And then we will see that what seemed to be all this multiplicity is actually only one. And what is that one? I am, our own being. So it's actually infinitely simple. Thank but you, Michael. Until we are ready to let go of everything else, we will continue complicating it. Because the e ego depends upon complexity, it com depends upon multiplicity. And when you have multiplicity, you have, com you, you have uh, confusion and complications and strife and everything. Yes, Thank sorry, you, sorry. No, no. Um, so there, uh, um, Ram is asking a question which um, you, um, you explained a bit. Uh, is ego also God since he created it? Did God create ego? Why should we put the blame on God for our own mistake? That is, who is aware of, who is aware of itself as I am Ram? Or I am Michael, or I am Kumar, or I am anyone. Who who is it? It is ego. So we can't put the blame for any, on anyone else for the mistake we have made. We have made the mistake of taking ourselves to be something other than what we actually are. So let's not blame God. So then, if God is not the cause of ego, if God is not has not created ego, who has created ego? What is the cause of ego? Why is there an ego? These are questions that, uh, or how did this ego come into existence? These are questions people often used to ask Bhagavan. Uh, 
And Bhagavan had a very simple answer. First, see whether ego actually exists. And if you actually find something called ego, then bring it to me and we can investigate who created it or where, what caused it. But if we investigate this ego, we find there's no such thing at all. So try, since ego doesn't actually exist, it is no more real than the son of a barren woman. So asking how was the son of a barren woman born? Who created the son of a barren woman? Who was the father of the son of a barren woman? Uh, why did the son of a barren woman, uh, why was he born? All are invalid. Why? Because there's no such thing as the son of a barren woman. Because if a, if, if a woman is barren, that means she's got no children. If she's got a son, then she's not barren. So the, the son of a barren woman is, is, a, is a, a, an analogy that is often used in Vedantic scriptures to show that what we take to be ego is actually totally non-existent. So inquiring about how ego came into existence is like inquiring about how the son of a barren woman was born. If we investigate this ego, we will find there's no such thing at all. So sorry, I, I, I haven't. I, um, your question was something about God creating ego. What, what was the question again? Is ego also God since he created it? There is no such thing as ego. If ego investigates itself, it will find only God. And it will see there is no such thing as ego. So yes, in a sense, since God alone exists, whatever seems to exist cannot be other than God. So ego cannot be... The, the snake is nothing but a rope, but the rope is not a snake. So God is not ego, but ego is nothing but God. Just as waves are a part of the ocean. Yeah. Well, but apart from the fact, the, the, the problem with the analogy is like the wave and the ocean. If there's an ocean, there'll certainly be waves. But that's why this, uh, that's why this snake rope analogy is a particularly appropriate analogy because the snake never actually exists. Oh. But the, the waves are as real as the ocean. We can't say the snake is as real as the rope. That's true. I mean, all these analogies are used, but um, all analogies have their limitations. Um, so we, we, we need to be careful, particularly with wave and ocean analogies. They're useful up to a certain point, but we shouldn't think that um, there so long as there's an ocean, there will inevitably be waves. Um, but so long as there's Brahman, there will be only Brahman and nothing but Brahman. There never was any ego. Thank you, Michael. Bruce asks, creation is in the domain of ego? Yes. That's the whole point of Bhagavan. That's what Bhagavan is repeatedly stressing. That's why he says in this verse 6, is there a world apart from the mind. The world is, is, that is a phenomena of all kinds. In other words, what is, the, the world is a collective name for phenomena or objects. They all appear in the view of, of, um, of, uh, of the subject, ego. So the, the whole world is created by ego. 
If ego comes into existence, everything comes into existence. If ego doesn't exist, everything doesn't exist. Ego itself is everything. That is, when we are dreaming, when the mind is dreaming, what is it seeing as that dream? It's seeing itself as the dream. Likewise, what we are now seeing as all this world is ourself. Thank you, Michael. Um, Kewa has a question. Hi, Michael. Hi. Hey, Michael, uh, I've got a question. Now, since uh, the world that we are in are as real as, oh, I'm sorry, the world that we see in the dreams mm. is actually as real as the world that we are in right now, in the waking state. You so can this, say it like that, or you can say it a more useful way of saying it. The world we see right now is as unreal as the world we see in a dream. <laughs> okay. Now, uh, uh, my point is, um, well, the world that we are seeing actually not only in this waking state or dream state, the Holy Scriptures also mentions about there are so many universes there are so many worlds for example like he uh, hell or heavens you name it all those major religions mentions about the existence of hells and heavens even the purana they talk about the hells and heavens now are those worlds hell or heavens of the major religions the semitic religions the hindus religions are they as real as the world that we are seeing in Speaking state or in the dream state? If you experience heaven or hell, it will seem to be just as real as the world you're now experiencing. But all, the, as Bhagavan says, is there a world apart from the mind? He's not just talking about this Buloka, this material world. It applies equally well to heaven. Is there a heaven apart from the mind? Is there a hell apart from the mind? It's all only in the mind. Now, does it mean that if we are in the hell or heaven, we are also actually in this body uh, right now? We call this body as a physical body. In our dream, we also uh, actually, when we are in the dream, that is also a physical body, but we call it a dream body, not yes. because we are waking. So yes. now in the, dream, uh, in the hell or heaven, are we also possessing a body like in this physical world? It will seem to be physical, yes. So meaning that our body also functions... Yes. Like we are in the physical world right now. There yes, is, yes, we need yes. to eat, we need to, you know, all those bodily functions. Yes, yes. But if you happen to be in hell, that your body is going to be causing you endless torment because you're going to be roasting in fire and also, I mean, all the scriptures, whether Hindu scriptures or Buddhist scriptures or Islamic or Christian scriptures, they all say the same. Hell is going to be a fire, torment, and everything. So if you're in hell, you'll probably wish you didn't have a body, but you can't get rid of it because, uh, because you're, in spite of all the suffering that we undergo through in hell, we will still be attached to that body as I. Mm. So the basic problem, the cause of both heaven and hell, is this dehatma buddhi, this false awareness, I am this body. And one more thing, you said about the Holy Scriptures talk about, uh, the Scriptures of all religions talk about heaven and hell. These Scriptures are also part of the dream. They're also part of this world. 
So when Bhagavan says it's very world apart from the, the, the mind, that includes is there a Bible apart from the mind? Is there a Quran apart from the mind? Are there Vedas or Bhagavad Gita or Uludunapadu or Upadeshundiya or, or uh, any other scriptures apart from the mind? It's all only in the mind. So the root of all these things is the eye that sees these things. We say there's a holy book called the Bible or the Vedas or the Quran or Uludunapadu or whatever. To whom are all these uh, holy books? In whose view do they seem to exist? The, okay. That is, the, these, all these books are as unreal as the world, which is as unreal as ego. But though they are unreal, that doesn't mean they're untrue. Often I used to say, if what Bhagavan says in Uludunapadu is true, then Uludunapadu is unreal. Because according to Bhagavan, everything other than I am is unreal. So if Uludunapadu is true, it's unreal. If it's real, then it's untrue. But it says everything is unreal. Okay, thank you, Michael. <laughs> when we say it is true, that in all these scriptures, somewhere or other in these scriptures, you will find something pointing your attention back within, turn, turning your attention back towards yourself. A scripture is only holy to the extent to which it turns our attention back to ourselves. That is where the truth lies. But, but that is, it's true in the sense, but it's pointing us in the right direction to get ourselves out of this mess we've got ourselves in. And we can get ourselves, we, we have got ourselves entangled in this mess by coming out. Only by going back within can we, un, can we uh, free ourselves from these knots that we've tied ourselves in. Thank you very much, Michael. Right, right. <laughs> Bhagwan addresses this in verse 178, to some extent of Guru Asha Kove. What do you have that? Yeah, I will read the translations. O men, do not argue and quarrel amongst yourselves about the reality of heaven and hell. As long as and as far as this present world is real, till then and to that extent, heaven and hell are also real. Exactly. <laughs> so let me get back to the questions. So we better behave ourselves when we're in this world. <laughs> right. Or we'll go to that, that other not such nice world. Why right. the religions talk so much about heaven and hell? It is, the, it is the carrot and stick. To try and make us behave ourselves in this world, we are threatened with a hell and we are offered the carrot of heaven. But even if you go to heaven, the heaven is the fruit of the good actions you've done in this lifetime. Hell is the fruit of bad actions you've done in, in this or any other lifetime. But since the actions we do are finite, their fruit are also finite. So if we if we've misbehaved ourselves, we may have to go to hell, but we'll be there only for a while. If we behave ourselves well, if we're good, we go to heaven, but only for a while. We have to, the, the, 
the dreaming continues. Some dreams are more pleasant, some dreams are unpleasant, because the dreams are just the fruit of our past actions. But neither heaven nor hell is a solution to our problems. The solution to our problem does not lie in anything extraneous to ourselves. It lies only within ourselves. We ourselves have a problem. We ourselves have a solution to the problem. By rising as ego and taking ourselves to be, I am this person, that is the root of all our problems. The solution is to know ourselves as we actually are by turning back within. Um, there is a question. Who is responsible for waking up? Should we not all have separate paths? If we have woken up, we are responsible. Waking up means... Oh, oh, okay, which sense are you talking about waking up in the real waking up or uh, waking up from... Okay, I think the question actually meant it in the, other, in the deeper sense of the, the real waking. Who is responsible for the real waking? Ultimately, it is grace. Grace is the infinite love that Bhagavan has for us as himself. That is the power that that draws us to this spiritual path, the power that leads us along this path, and the power that eventually uh, swallows us. So grace is responsible for our awakening. But we also have a part to play, because grace is not something working from outside. Grace is our own real nature. So it works from within. It works through us. So all our efforts to follow this path are themselves part of grace. So we have to be willing to yield ourselves to grace by turning our attention back within. So ultimately, it is only grace. Ultimately, it's all done by grace. But we have our part to play. And the second question... Without our cooperation, grace will not force this awakening on us. Because what we call awakening, in that deeper sense, is nothing but annihilation of ego. Until we are willing to surrender ourselves, he will not kill us. And the second part of the question, uh, um, or the second question the same person asked is, should we not all have separate paths? There can only be one path, the path back within. Because the problem is we've come out. We've come out from ourselves, so to speak. Out means we, uh, uh, instead of being aware of just ourselves, we're now aware of all this multiplicity. All this seems to be outside ourselves. So we talk about out and in. Ultimately, out and in are not real. But so long as we are aware of multiplicity, all objects and phenomena seem to be outside. So it is said we have to turn back within. Turning back within means turning back towards ourself. So since our goal is ourself, there's only one path towards our goal. That is to go back towards ourself, go back within. Right. Bhagavan said, there's a verse in Guru Vachakukavai in which Bhagavan says, Upayame Tane um, uh, something like that. What, what he says is, oneself alone is the goal. Oneself alone, 
oneself alone is is the is the path. Oneself alone is the goal. There is no no them to be non-different. Yeah. Since self is the eternal non-dual thing, and since there is no means to reach it other than self-attention, know that self itself is the path. Self itself is the goal, and that day the path and the goal are not different. That that's verse number what? Five seventy nine. Five seventy nine, right? <clears throat> Thank you, Michael. So Vidya as uh, referring back to the analogy of rope and snake, um, and the analogy of waves and ocean. Thank you so much, Michael. That was a great point about the rope and the snake being a better reference in understanding ego and our real self. The analogy of waves and ocean seems to work well when mind is seen as waves playing on the surface of the ocean, while the ocean is still in the depths, like our true nature of as pure being. When Bhagwan used the term diving, maybe this is what he's referring to? Uh, yes, um, except the word that the terms that Bhagavan used for, that are often translated as diving. I prefer to translate them as sinking because diving sounds very sounds very active. Whereas when we turn our attention back towards ourselves, we automatically sink back within. So to, to my way of thinking, sinking is a more appropriate uh, translation. Um, I know in English we talk about pearl divers, but when Bhagavan uses that analogy of pearl divers, he says, uh, tying stones to their waist, they sink within. So I think it, sinking seems, it, it, it may not, it may seem to be not a, a huge difference, but to me, sinking gives a better idea of what Bhagavan implied by the words he used. Thank you, Michael. That's because that's we, we, before, we yeah. subside back within, not by doing anything, but by ceasing to do anything. By holding on to our being, we cease to do and thereby we subside. Diving sounds more like a doing, whereas sinking sounds more like a, a letting go, a, a ceasing mm. to do. Right. Uh, Vidya says, thanks again, as indeed sinking feels far more appropriate than diving, more a surrender. Yeah, exactly. Surrender, that is the thing. Bhagavan's path is all about surrender. And how can we surrender ourselves? Only by holding on to ourselves. Thank you, Michael. Um, then Bruce makes a comment, with luck, we can develop an allergy to all world creation, be it heaven, hell, and or any imagined domain. If you say allergy, you mean if you mean an aversion, that that sense of aversion to to that is why does any world appear, whether heaven or hell or this world or any other world? It's because we allow the mind to come outwards. The more we the more we recognize that the very nature of the world is suffering. Uh, Bhagavan says in in Nana in the um, uh, towards the end of the fourteenth paragraph of Nana, 
Jagam Embadu Nineve, but what is called the world is only thought. Jagam Mariam Podu, Adabdu Ninevatra Podu, Manam Anandate Anubavikindradu, Kiridu, sorry. Um, uh, um, when the world disappears, that is when thoughts cease, the mind experiences happiness. Jagam Tondram Podu, when the world appears, Adu Dukate Anubavikindradu. So the, um, uh, uh, when the more we recognize that by allowing our mind to come outwards and experience a world of any kind whatsoever, ultimately even heaven is is a state of misery because we are we we cannot experience heaven without rising as ego and the very nature of ego that the very nature of embodied existence is suffering so to to the to those who lack discrimination heaven seems a very um a very pleasant a very heavenly place um, but for those who have discrimination, even heaven will seem like hell. The true heaven, the, the heaven in the sense of the state of true happiness, lies only within us. So even the, 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 the highest heaven, the seventh heaven, the Brahma Loka or whatever it's called, even that is misery compared to the infinite happiness that is our own real nature. But we need to have Viveka to recognize that. If we have a Viveka to recognize that, then we will naturally feel an aversion to experiencing anything other than ourselves. Or to put it in more positive terms, we will have a, an all-consuming love to attend to ourselves alone. Hey, Michael. Mm, yes. It's me again, Keva. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to ask you another question again. I've no, got no another problem, question. No problem. Um, well, I've watched most of your or all of your talks, either with the UK satsangs or the Spanish group on YouTube. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, I remember, I recall that you, one of, on one of your talk with the UK satsang, you talked about the, uh, correct me if, if I am wrong, um, about the the end result of the uh, Atma Vichara and the practitioner of Yoga Patanjali are actually the same. The only difference is in Yoga Patanjali, it only achieved manuna, uh, Manulaya. The end result is only for temporary, it's not permanent. While the Atma Vichara is permanent because it reached the Manunasa. Now, to what extent is the practitioner of Patanjali Yoga actually can achieve the end result the same with the Atma Vichara practitioner. If my understanding is wrong, please correct me. Right. Um, Bhagavan has answered this in, um, in Upateshundia. In, um, in verse 13, um, what Bhagavan says is, Dissolution of mind is of two kinds, layer and nasa. What is in layer 
will rise. If its form dies, it will not rise. So the difference between Leia and NASA, Leia is a temporary dissolution of mind. NASA is permanent dissolution. So how to bring about the, the permanent dissolution? Bhagavan gives the answer to that in verse 14. What he says in verse 14 is, Odaka valiye odungum ulate. Ulate means the mind. The mind which subs which will odungum means it subsides or it becomes calm when one restrains the breath. So and then he says, Vidakave or vari. That Vidakave means only if one sends or only when one sends, or vari means the path of investigation, Orambari, the path of in, the investigating path. So what he's saying here, only when one sends the mind, which will become calm when one restrains the breath, on the investigating path, biyam uh, adonuru, will its form perish. So the implication here is, if we continue trying to control the breath, in other words, if we continue with the practices of yoga, without turning the mind of, you know, towards the investigating path, we will end up in layer. So Bhagavan often used to say, if you want to practice pranayama or any other yoga practices, fine. But before the mind subsides in layer, you should then turn it back to turn it back within to investigate who am I. Because if you subside in layer, it is of no, it, it's of no, there's no spiritual benefit to be gained from layer. Every night we sleep for six or seven or eight hours. Do we gain any spiritual benefit? Yes, sleep is obviously necessary because we are tired after projecting this world throughout for several hours throughout the day. And so we need rest. So we return, we, we need to subside back into layer, to dissolve back into our source. But then we pop up again because we haven't known what we actually are. So sleep is necessary. Other forms of mana layer are not necessary. Bhagavan used to tell a story about a yogi on the banks of a Ganga. Uh, that yogi was very adept in um in uh in um in the yoga practices. So he often used to go into what is called Kevala Nivikalpa Samadhi. That is considered the highest Samadhi. Um, but Bhagavan said, even that Samadhi is just a state of Manolaya. Um, but anyway, it, it, generally it is considered, uh, Kevala Nivikalpa Samadhi is considered to be a very lofty state. That is the general belief. So, uh, believing that that was the spiritual goal, he was off. This yogi was uh, doing all his yoga practices and often going into that state of layer for prolonged periods. Sometimes for days on end, he would be in layer. One day, after a long time in layer, he woke up and he was feeling thirsty. So he asked his disciple to go to a nearby river, the Ganga was just flowing nearby, and fetch him some water. And when the disciple came back, before the disciple could fetch the water and come back, the yogi had again gone back into samadhi. And this time he was so deeply absorbed in samadhi, he remained in that state for 300 years. And after 300 years, when he woke up, 
of course, the disciple was long dead gone. The, the Ganga had actually changed course. So it was several miles away. And because the Ganga had changed course, the village had also moved uh, followed the river. So the yogi was actually, after 300 years, he was lost in the midst of a thick jungle. But after waking up, the first thing he did was he angrily asked, where's my water? So Bhagavan said, what this story illustrates is the, the last thought that was in his mind before he went into samadhi was the first thought that popped up when he woke up. That shows that not even the most superficial thought in the mind is destroyed in spite of remaining 300 years or any number of hundred years in samadhi. So when the, when the thoughts on the surface of the mind are not destroyed, what to say about all the vasanas that give rise to those thoughts? So the implication of that story is that there's no benefit to be gained. We don't, we 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 cannot destroy our vasanas. We cannot even weaken our vasanas by remaining in uh, manolaya for any length of time. So if we just practice uh, raja yoga, about the Patanjali's yoga, the pranayama, and other practices, without turning the mind back within, we will end up in layer. And however long we remain in layer, we gain no benefit. That is why Bhagavan says in this verse 14, only when one sends the mind, which will become calm when one restrains the breath, on the investigating path, will its form perish. What he implies by that is, if you want, if you find it beneficial to, to, to practice pranayama in order to calm your mind, fine, do that. If that's what appeals to you, but before the mind uh, dissolves in layer, you need to turn it on the on the investigating path. Obviously, once the mind is dissolved in layer, you can't do anything. So before it dissolves in layer, we should send the mind on the ovary. Ovary, as I said, it means ovary, the investigating path. It also or also means one. So we can also take it as the one path. But what is the one path that Bhagavan said is the means to annihilate mind, it is only the investigating path. So the, the yogis can attain their goal only by turning their mind back within to investigate who am I. So in Upadesha Undia, just like in the Bhakti, in the earlier verses when he's talking about karma and bhakti, he talks about the different types of nishkarmiya karma that we can do um, for the love of God. That's puja, japa, and dhyana. And he describes each one of them why, and, and says each is more efficacious than the previous one. But then in verse 8, he says, rather than anyabhava, um, uh, that implies meditating on God as something other than oneself. Anya means other. Ananyabhava, in which he is I. That is mean meditating on him as not I, uh, sorry, as not other than I, with the understanding that he is, he is what is shining in one's eye. That is what is implied there. Anatinam uh, utamam. That is the best among all. So in those early verses, he's showing how other practices of karma yoga and bhakti, karma yoga is just a subsidiary limb of bhakti yoga. That is the preliminary practices of bhakti. So long as we take God to be other than ourselves, we can express our love for him only by actions. And the actions we can do are, are puja, 
that's the action of a body, japa, the action of the speech, and dhyana, the action of the mind. Each one is, be- is more efficacious in purifying the mind than the previous one. And um, he says in verse 7, rather than, un- than interrupted meditation, the uninterrupted meditation is, benef- is, is best because it's um, the more we have love for God, the more our meditation on God will not be interrupted. But so long as we are taking God to be something other than ourselves, we we cannot reach our goal. We can reach the final goal. That is, if you meditate on God as other than yourself, you may go to heaven, you may go to Vaikuntha uh, or Kailasa or uh, wherever, whatever the, the, the world of the particular God you're worshipping. Um, but that is not the final goal. The final goal is Mananasa. So, uh, um, so Bhagavan says in verse 8, but uh, better than meditating on God as something other than oneself, if one meditates on God as not other than oneself, in other words, if one meditates on oneself alone with the conviction that he is I, that is best among all. And then he says in the next verse, verse 9, by the strength of that meditation, that means the meditation on God is not other than oneself. In other words, that's another way, that Ananya Bhavra is another way of describing Atma Vichara. If we're, not me- if we're meditating on what is not other than ourself, what are we meditating on? We're meditating on ourself alone. Um, so by the strength of that uh, of such uh, of such meditation, Baba Balatinal, Bhavana Tita Sabhava Tirutale, being in the state of uh, being in one's uh, uh, real being or in the state of being, uh, which transcends all uh, all bhavana. Bhavana that means meditation in the sense of mental activity. Uh, um, that is Parabhakti Tattva, that is the supreme devotion. So when when he says um being in the uh sat bhava, in the in the state of being, which transcends uh, um, uh all mental activity, how can we be in that state of being by the strength of uh the bhava that he spoke about in the previous verse, namely the Ananya Bhava? In other words, by the strength of self-attentiveness. We we subside and remain in the state of being, and that is supreme devotion. And then in the next verse, he says, uh, uh, subsiding and being, or or being having subsided in the place from which one rose, that is karma, that is bhakti, that is yoga, that is jnana. So in all these uh, in all these verses, he's showing how karma marga is a limb of bhakti. Bhakti must emerge in, in Yanamaga, in Ananya Baba. That will lead to a state of being. Likewise about yoga, he 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 points out what is the efficacy of yoga, but by controlling the breath, you that's a means to control the mind. But if you if you don't go anything further than the yoga practices, you'll end up in layer. If you want to, the ultimate goal is manonasa, the permanent dissolution of mind. That can be achieved only by sending the mind on the path of investigation, the one path of investigation, because that's the only path that will lead to annihilation of mind. Okay, so 
does it mean that the practitioner of any type of meditations other than atma vichara cannot achieve the final goal or in other words cannot achieve or cannot attain moksha if the answer is yes what about the spiritual masters just like buddha or jesus or moses did they practice atma vichara so that they can become enlightened how can you what it, what it, that is if you take if nirvana or moksha is annihilation of ego as bhagavan says in the last verse of uludunapadu but the destruction of ego alone is moksha if we if you accept that how can we destroy ego ego is a false awareness of ourselves so the false awareness of ourselves can be destroyed only by correct awareness of ourselves so we can attain moksha or nirvana only by knowing ourselves as we actually are and how can we know ourselves as we actually are if we never investigate ourselves so all other paths are directing our attention outwards in one way or another but in order to attain the final goal there may be so many intermediate goals that is for the for the devotees of god they may think going to um goloka or vaikuntha or kailasa or um the christian heaven or the muslim heaven or the, the the pure land of the pure land buddhist they may think that is the final goal but all those states are finite they are a they have a finite fruit of finite actions so sooner or later we have to come back again so the final goal the ultimate goal is only annihilation of ego so if we accept that that is the, uh, uh, that that is the final goal and if we understand that that goal can be achieved only by knowing ourselves and we can obviously know ourselves only by investigating ourselves then there's no way of attaining the final goal without self investigation without turning our attention back within so all those who have attained the final goal we have to assume that they had turned their attention back within because if they hadn't turned their attention back within how could they have attained it and it, it's implied there in some for take jesus for example one of the sayings in in um in the bible that is often quoted is the kingdom of god is within you but that he jesus didn't just say the kingdom of god is within you believe me he said look see the kingdom of god is within you so how can we look and see that the kingdom of god is within us unless we look within so from that we can infer that ultimately sooner or later we need to look within and there are so many teachings of buddha from which we can infer the same thing ultimately we need to know what we ourselves actually are many things michael buddha said be a light to yourself <laughs> how can you be a light to yourself unless you look at yourself if you're always looking away from the light you're not being a light to yourself view of a light you should look at yourself not look outwards otherwise you're misusing the light to know other things rather than to know the light itself if you want to know if the sun is shining in the sky we use the sunshine to see so many things in this world but we don't look up and look at the sunshine at the sun itself because if we look at the sun we'll be blinded but the sun of jnana but is ever shining in our heart as i if we want to know it we have to look at it 
and we will thereby be permanently blinded. We won't see, ever see anything else apart from that. Because that alone is what actually exists. Thank you, Michael. Um, there is a quote uh, from Jesus, Be still and know that I am God. I interpret that as referring to self-attention, you know, because, you know, yes, uh, yes. the mainstream interpretation, but that's how I look at it. Yes, yes. That is, Bhagavan often used to refer to that. That's not actually a saying of Jesus. That's in the Psalms. It's in the Old Testament. Um, but yes, that is uh, the, uh, the, the foremost name of God in the Old Testament is I am. That is uh, uh, when Moses asked God, uh, who who shall I say has sent me? Uh, God replied, I am that I am. Say that I am has sent you. So uh, the, I am is revered as the foremost name of God. Um, that saying, I am that I am, how I understand that is, what God is saying there is, I am is what I am. And that's how Bhagavan took it. That's why Bhagavan often used to refer to that. So since I am itself is God, how can we know what we actually are? So long as we're rushing outwards, we can't know ourselves as God. If we want to know ourselves as God, if we want to know that I am alone is God, we need to turn back within and subside back into ourselves. That is being still. Right. Going, allowing the attention to go outwards is an activity. Turning the attention back within is a subsidence of all activity. So only in that state of perfect stillness, which is achieved by turning our attention back within, will we know the truth that I am is God. What right. is shining on us as I am, that itself is God. We ourselves are God. Thank you, Michael. Um, before I go, I think there's two more questions. Um, quickly, uh, Robert Tilgish, did you want to make a comment? Robert? Yeah. Yes, yes. Um, uh, uh, Michael, in the Christian tradition and also in the um, Muslim and um, and other, other major traditions, you've had throughout the millennia the, the mystics. And the mystics, I think, arguably could be the ones that were able to subside. They often, well, they all uniquely uh, involve themselves in deep and profound prayer. Uh, so I think, I think it's fair to say that that what Bhagavan has given us is a, is a is an explanation of what it is that these guys throughout this millennia have been doing, yes. and that is subsiding into the self. You know, I I and the Father are one. I mean, let that sink in. I and the Father are one, and I wish that you were in me so we could be one. Yeah, exactly. God. I mean, there's that, exactly. and, and love, love ultimately is the disappearance of the ego. Anyway, yep. just a thought. Yeah, yeah. I, I often used to say, Bhagavan has de demystified mysticism. <laughs> that is what was previously taken to be mystical. Bhagavan has made so simple. He's explained it. He's clarified what it is all about. Thank you, Michael. Sandy asks this question, um, the first I thought, which is the basis for all other thoughts, is it the first thought when we wake up every morning or when does the first I thought arise? That, yes, 
every, every time we begin dreaming, let's say, because this waking state is just a dream, every time we come out of sleep, first thought to rise is this thought I. Because the thought I is ego, the subject. It's only in the view of the thought I that all other thoughts arise. Though Bhagavan referred to ego as the thought I, he also made it clear that though it is a thought, it's a thought unlike all other thoughts. Because all other thoughts are jada. They have no awareness whatsoever. No other thought knows either itself or anything else. The only thought that knows other thought, that knows both itself and other thoughts, is this thought called I. Because this thought called I is not jada. It is chit jada granti. It is the knot formed by the entanglement of chit and jada. So in ego, there is that essential chit element. That is, when we, as Bhagavan said, ego is the false awareness, I am this body. In other words, ego is that which is always aware of itself as I am this body. The chit element of ego is I am. That awareness I am, that is the chit element. That is our, our being, our fundamental awareness. The jada aspect is this body, but we take ourselves to be. So all adjuncts are jada. So the, the, um, though, though ego is a thought, the, the first thought called I, as Bhagavan often described it, it is a thought unlike any other thought. Because though it has a jada element in it, though it identifies itself with something jada, its essential element is the chit element. That's why Bhagavan, there's a very uh, nicely recorded uh, portion in Mahasha's Gospel when someone is questioning Bhagavan about why this path is efficacious. Why, does it, why do you say that this investigating ego will lead to uh, pure awareness? Bhagavan explains very nicely there. Uh, ego is chit jadagranti. That, that, that chit, chit means pure awareness, jada means what is not aware, granti means a knot. So the knot formed by the entanglement of these, this is ego. He says, and he uses another term there, he uses the term ahambriti. Ahambriti is a Sanskrit term that means I thought. It's, for, say, it's another term for ego. So the way it's recorded there, he says, in your investigation into the source of the ahambriti, you take the essential chit aspect of ego, and so it will unfailingly lead you to that pure awareness. That chit aspect is the pure awareness I am. So, because we, the, though Bhagavan often said that uh, someone was asking me about this recently, said, I can't remember in what context it was, but I gave an analogy. That is, Bhagavan often talks about investigating ego or holding on to the I thought. But that is not the deepest teaching. That is not the most refined way of saying it. That's a very good pointer, but it's not the most refined way. What he says in Mahasha's gospel, he's clarifying them. Uh, why holding on to the I thought is effective? Because what we're holding on to, we're not holding on to the Jada portion. When Bhagavan says, investigate who am I, we don't begin investigating any of the five sheaths. We don't investigate this body or the prana or the manamaya kosha or vijnanamaya kosha or anandamaya kosha. We're investigating only the I that is aware of itself as I am these five sheaths. So we're taking the essential chit aspect. So I, I used an analogy to explain this. When you, if you're 
supposing a lady has lost a diamond ring while walking on the hill, on a hill, and you're, you've been, you're asked to go and recover that diamond ring. How are you going to find a diamond ring on? It's a big, big hill. So how, how on earth can you find a diamond ring on that hill? You need to be given some clues. So first you're told on that, uh, on the eastern slope of the hill, uh, there's a, a, there's a lone tree there. Go to that tree. So you go to the tree, but then how can you, you're still looking around. You don't know where that diamond ring is. Then you're given more precise instructions. Um, uh, five meters to the, uh, to the, um, uh, right of that tree, there's a, a rock. So you go to the rock. Then you're told from that rock, under that rock, there's a small spring. So water is oozing out. And, and that water forms a small little trickle or stream going down. Follow that for 20 meters. Uh, so you follow that for 20 meters. Then you're told after 20 meters, that stream merges into a tuft of grass. So you go there and then you're told in that tuft of grass is the lady's ring. So you look in the tuft of grass, you get the ring. So you begin, the first instruction is pointing you roughly towards where you're going. So you, you, the hill is, a, that, that tree is a very good marker because it's something you can see clearly from a distance, you can go to a tree. But once you get to a tree, you still don't know where to find the ring. So you have to be given a more, uh, a more refined instruction. Now go 10 feet to the right, tell 10 meters to the right and find the, this rock with this uh, water. So you're given more and more refined instruction. So when Bhagavan says, uh, investigate the ego or investigate the thought I, that is pointing us in the right direction, but that's not the most refined teaching. He clarifies what he means by that, but when we investigate ego, it's not ego as ego we're investigating. It's not ego as the, the mixed awareness. We're investigating the essential chit aspect of ego. We're investigating who am I? It's the I we're investigating. So, in this way, Bhagavan is pointing us deeper and deeper within. So, um, I've gone a bit off uh, on a bit of a tangent, but yes, but, but what first rises, uh, when thoughts rise, the first thought to rise is this third thought I. Because this first thought, as I say, it's unlike any other thought, because this is the only thought that is endowed with awareness. No other thought is aware of its own existence. So other thoughts appear in whose view? Only in the view of this first thought I. That's why Bhagavan says um, in, um, the, uh, in the fifth paragraph of uh, Nana, um, Manadil Tondrum Nene Vugal Elavitricum Nanenum Neneve Mudal Nenevu. And he put that Nanenum Neneve Mudal Nenevu, he underlined it. And so that was always printed in bold. Uh, that means of all the thoughts that appear in the mind, what he put in bold is the thought called I alone is the first thought. The term he used for first thought is mudal ninebu. Mudal means first, primal, original, or causal. So that is the first thought, the cause of all other thoughts. And then he says in the next uh, sentence, Idu arunda pirahe enia nenevugal erukindrana. Only after this arises, 
do other thoughts rise? Why do other thoughts rise only after this uh, first thought rises? Because other thoughts arise only in the view of this first thought. So we we need to understand this. We need to understand that the thought, what Bhagavan refers to as the thought called I, is not an object. It is the subject. So it's only in the, all other thoughts are objects. So it's only in the view of the subject that the objects appear. And then he goes on to say the same thing using different terms. Only after the first person appears do second and third persons appear. The first person means ego, the, this, uh, this first thought called I. Uh, and second and third persons do all other thoughts or all other things. So only after the first person appears do second and third persons appear. Without the first person, second and third persons do not exist. Why do they not exist? Because they they seem to exist only in the view of the first person. So without the first person, there are no second and third persons. So Bhagavan is saying the same thing again and again and again, but just in different terms. Everything depends upon its ex for its seeming existence upon ego, because it all everything seems to exist only in the view of ego. So if we investigate ego and know what we actually are. Ego will thereby be destroyed, everything else will cease to exist, and what will remain is Ekam Eva Advaitiam, one only without a second. And what is that one? Tatvamasi, you are that. So Bhagavan has simplified the whole of Vedanta. He's, he's presented it in such a simple and clear way. If we, if we have understood Bhagavan's works, if we studied and understood Bhagavan's works, we don't have to read the Upanishads, we don't have to read the Brahma Sutra, we don't have to read the Bhagavad Gita, we don't have to read any of the commentaries on them, because the essence of the whole of Vedanta has been summarized by Bhagavan in an extremely simple and clear way. If we read all these other books, there will be so many ideas which are half-truths, just like pointing towards the tree. But the tree is not where the ring lies. The, the tree is just, a, is just a pointing us in the right direction. Once we get to the tree, then, we are, then more precise instructions can be given. So all these Vedantic texts, they, they are a mixture of more precise and less precise instructions. The most precise instructions are uh, statements like, Ekameva Advaitiam, Tatvamasi. These are pointing us direct back to ourselves. But people get so much caught up in other things, they fail to understand the significance of it. So they, they, the, the scholars will argue whether you first have to investigate the, the Tat or the Tvum, the, the, the Tatpada or the Tumpada, which is to be investigated first. And you, you can't know the whole truth without investigating both. They miss the point. It says tatvamasi. That means you are that. So if you are that, all you need to know, it, it's, that's like pointing you. Once you've come to the tree, you're given a more refined instruction. So till now, we've been looking for Brahman outside. Now we are told you yourself are that. So it's turning our attention back to ourselves. So if we understand the Upanishads, the, the, these Mahavakyas correctly, they're all pointing our attention back at ourselves. That is what that is the essence, the practical essence of the whole of Vedanta. That is what Bhagavan has made so clear. 
and so sim by presenting it in such a clear and simple manner. Thank you, Michael. Uh, last question. Yes. A lesson is grace. Is manifested grace a reflection of an externalized God? Uh, sorry, can you say that again? Um, a lesson is grace. Is a, a lesson, is it? Yeah. A lesson is grace, okay. Right. And is manifested grace a reflection of an externalized God? God is not external. Uh, God seems to us to be external because we have limited ourselves. If, if I am Michael, obviously Michael isn't God. So, so because I limit myself as I am Michael, God seems to be something other than me. Since he's other than me, he seems to be something outside of me. But the truth is, God is the I am in the false awareness, I am Michael. So, so God is what we actually are. He is ever shiny in our heart as I am. He is never external. And God is what we otherwise call Bhagavan. So Bhagavan is always shiny in our heart as I. And because Bhagavan doesn't see us as other than himself, because he's, he's our own real nature, he's what we actually are, because he doesn't see us as other than himself, he, he, he loves us as himself. Literally, he loves us as himself because he doesn't see us as other than himself. So the infinite love that he has for each and every one of us as himself is what we experience as his grace. So grace is the real nature of God, the real nature of Bhagavan. And since Bhagavan is our real nature, we ourselves are grace. So if we want to surrender ourselves to grace, we have to turn back within and give ourselves to grace. So how do we, grace is working to save us, but we need to cooperate with grace. Grace means that love of Bhagavan is working to save us. But if we don't cooperate, if we keep on rushing outwards, how can he save us? He's not going to, he's not going to kill us until we're ready to give our, until we're ready to put our head on the chopping block. We, we need to be willing to surrender ourselves wholly to him. Then only he will swallow us. He will, never, he will never force himself upon us. Only when we give ourselves wholly to him will he take us and, and swallow us. So uh, the, the ultimate grace is being swallowed by him. So grace is never coming from outside. Grace is always there in our heart. Because we, but so long as we take God to be something other than ourselves, grace seems to be something coming from outside. But when we come to understand God is nothing other than our own being, we ourselves are God. We means not we ourselves as this little ego. Ego obviously isn't God, but the reality of ego is God. So uh, since God is what we actually are, and since God and his grace obviously are not two different things, because God, God is love. It is said in so not. I mean, Bhagavan has said God is love, but that's said in so many of the scriptures of so many religions. They say God is love. Um, but God is his love is his very nature, and since he is our very nature, love is our very nature. But we need to 
give ourselves wholly to him in order to be, but because he is love, he will never force anything on us. So until we're willing to surrender ourselves wholly to him, he will not devour us. So grace is preparing the ground, making us willing to surrender ourselves to him. So ultimately, as Bhagavan said, grace is the beginning, the middle, and the end. It is grace that draws us to the spiritual path. It's grace that leads us along this spiritual path, and it is grace that will finally swallow us. And since grace is love, the infinite love that he has for us, as this is why Bhagavan sings in verse 101 of Aksharam Lai, Ambu vilali pol, amburu vunilene, anbai karitaralaranachala. Ambu vilali pol, like ice in water, uh, Melt me as love in you, the form of love. Lovingly melt me as, as love in you, the form of love. So Arunachala is love itself. We are not, the, the ice is nothing other than the water. So if, if we are the ice, we are nothing other than ice, than the love, but in a solidified form. By rising as ego, this, this, uh, we become a little lump of ice. We need to melt and dissolve back into him. But do we change in any way? No, we're still, whether we are in the form of ice or whether we are melted in him, we are always only water. We are always only, we are never anything other than the infinite love that is Bhagavan himself. That is God Himself. But we 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 now seem to be separate because of our frozen hard heart. So our heart needs to melt with love for Him. Then only we can merge back into Him. Then only we can, as Bhagavan said, melt me as love in you, the form of love. Om Namo Bhagavate Sri Aranachala Ramanaya. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Thank Kumar. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And thanks first and foremost to Bhagavan.